Max Quick, Book Two, The Two Travelers, by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. The sequel to Max Quick, Book One, The Pocket and the Pendant, produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Podiobooks.com. For more information on the Max Quick series or this podcast, please visit www.maxquickseries.com. Five, the hidden hand. Max and Ian popped out of the book. They were in the very same study they had been in when they first entered the book on the golden pedestal. But now the room was ceremoniously lit by nearly a hundred candles, illuminating several people present. They were seated on plush couches in a semicircle around Max and Ian. A fireplace beyond roared with a torrential flame. The man whom they had been chasing through the books was here as well. Weirdly, he wore a tuxedo now. His injured hand had been wrapped in a thick white bandage seeping with red. His eyes glinted menacingly when he caught sight of the two young men. He sat to the left of an older woman dressed in rich, lush colors like a gypsy. Her skin was dark and sultry, and she wore her black hair bundled under a dark bandana. Two thick golden hoop earrings dangled from either ear, and she wore several rings on her fingers. But her smoky eyes were alert and piercing, full of clear intelligence and a raw, primitive energy. To her right was a man of about fifty in a three-piece suit with a studious appearance, like a professor of some kind, and next to him a broadly built Asian man with a powerful bear-like body. And finally, a stunning French blonde girl of sixteen or seventeen. Who are you? The gypsy-looking woman snapped at Max and Ian. Max caught Ian's eye and shook his head slightly. We give them nothing. The baubles at her ears tinkled in annoyance. She glanced around at her companions. You two are trespassers, she growled, and we do not take kindly to trespassers here. And so I will ask you again, who are you? Max's mind was racing. These people had to be Nibirian, despite their human appearance and garb. After all, he had just seen one in a sky chamber, stealing babies, and they clearly knew about books. But what were Newberians doing in 1912 New York? Well, that was easy, wasn't it? They were building the machine. They were the ones behind it, not Johnny Siren. Newberians were invading Earth here in the past. There had been another attempt. But what if they learned that Max and Ian were actually from the future? Well, they mustn't learn that then, Max thought. It was that simple. The man who looked like a professor, a large-headed, mostly bald man, with silver round wireframe glasses, John Lennon glasses, Ian thought, studied Max very carefully. Then he spoke, pronouncing his diagnosis. He's hiding something. I can see the knot in him, a shadow in his mind. A distinctly uncomfortable rustling rippled through the five. They didn't like that news one bit. Max smirked to himself. Too bad, he thought. Johnny Siren hadn't liked it either. He had tried to pierce the same shadow with a singular eye and had come up empty. Can you tell what it is? The gypsy woman asked coldly, as if Max and Ian were no longer present. No, madame, but he's... he's Nuberian. That was clearly a surprise. You are sure, Gustav? 
very. There can be no doubt. But the other one, he is human. There was a beat. The gypsy, Madame, said dangerously, You two young men had better be very, very forthright with us. But Max and Ian stubbornly held to their silence. They knew what they were dealing with here. Iberians couldn't be trusted. Max scanned the room, looking for exits, but could see none. And besides, there were five of them. He and Ian had been bested by only one, and not even the top gun of the group by the looks of it. Taking on all five at once would likely be a nightmare. And then Max suddenly felt Gustav in his mind, like an intruder quietly sneaking in, carefully lifting an unlocked window. He was trying to penetrate the mind shadow, the cryptonesia, while Max was distracted with the questioning. Clever, Max thought. Attack us on two levels at once, consciously and subconsciously. Max spun towards Gustav instinctively, and before Max had even thought about what he was doing, he whooshed forward and physically assaulted the man. It was a pure reflex reaction, self-defense. He literally had his hands around Gustav's throat, choking the life from him. Get out of my head, Max shouted into his mind. Get out! Gustav froze like a thief discovered in a headlight. Madame swore in her native tongue. They had all been caught flat-footed by Max's surprise attack. But Gustav recovered quickly, and to Max's surprise, he found that instead of an old man, he was suddenly throttling a massive lion. The great cat roared viciously in his face, making his very bones vibrate beneath his skin. Shaking with terror, Max let go of the monstrous flowing mane in a shock of fright. A flurry of fangs snapped near Max's hands, which jumped back in closer to his body almost of their own volition, as Max stumbled backwards, feeling bolts of adrenaline pumping through the carotid artery in his neck. And then the lion was gone, and Gustav was in his place, eyeing Max. Madame screeched, They dare attack us in our own... But Gustav protested immediately. No, do nothing. The fault is mine. I did not believe he would sense me. He was merely defending himself. I would have done the same in his place. If you do anything like that again, the man in the tux said slowly, his voice quivering with rage, I will roast you where you stand, regardless of what the others think. But Max barely heard him. He just gazed at Gustav now with amazement. How the hell did he turn into a lion? Max felt as if he had just attempted to assault a shaman or a medicine man, a man of knowledge and power. Max focused on calming down his slamming heart. The lion had given him a good scare, and he was struggling to come down from it. Then a new voice filled the air, a girl's voice, breathy, yet precise and controlled, quiet yet commanding respect. They come from that which is yet to come, from our tomorrows, just as we are from there that which has been. Visible shock coursed through her companions. Max was likewise stunned. How had this girl guessed? Had she plucked this information from their minds somehow? Oh, of course she had. All five of them were obviously talented in Nuberian mentalist techniques. She leaned forward and Max got his first real look at her. She was stunning. She had exotic, olive-colored skin, combined with very curly blonde hair. The contrast that these two features produced was very striking. She was a joyous shout of health, vibrant and clean. 
She positively glowed, but she was dressed like a simple farm girl in overalls. Her hands, arms, and the front of her overalls were covered in splotchy paint of all different colors, as if she had just been dragged here moments ago from art class. But, uh, but how is that possible? The one called Gustav asked. It cannot affect anything. What would be the point of such a journey? The man in the tux, the one who they chased through the books, suddenly rose and went to the fireplace. He reached into the blazing heat with tongs and removed several items and placed them on some kind of large tray. Twice the man looked up from his task and leered with a delight that made Max very uneasy. He returned with the tray and placed it on the ground at Max and Ian's feet. It held two sets of red-hot iron shoes. The air shimmered and wavered above this ghastly footwear, evidently heated to extreme temperatures in the coals of the fireplace. They radiated intense heat like a scream. A bolt of terror shot through Max. Are they actually going to? Madame looked at the shoes, and then at Max and Ian, and nodded slightly. Ah, yes. If you do not give us the answers we require, you will wear the shoes. You will do the dance for us. It is something from the old country, but I find it still works very well here in the new. We should kill them, said the man in the tuxedo. He leaned forward into the light. You all know we cannot allow them to leave. They have seen us. They have pierced the enigma of our lair. That galled Max. Between the shoes and this latest comment, it was too much. The only reason we're here is because we were chasing you, if you remember, Max said. We don't like people who troll around in sky chambers, kidnapping babies. Max's casual mention of the word sky chamber startled the group. They clearly recognized it. Madame gasped. How is it you know of such things? But the man in the tux snapped at the same time. It was not I who stole the child. Gustav also chimed in. I've said he is Nuberian. It is not at all surprising that he knows of sky chambers. We saw you do it, Max replied to the man in the tux. What's the matter? Don't you want your friends here to know? The tuxedoed man turned, infuriated to Madame. This is an outrage. I don't have to listen to this from... Old, said Gustav calmly. We will learn more this way, Gaspar. Gaspar retreated with a snarl of disgust. He glanced down at the glowing shoes and then at Max with longing. Everyone was silent for a moment. Madame considered carefully and then enunciated each word as she said, We do not lack people who steal babies in sky chambers either. Yet here is an enigma. You refuse to speak to us, and you are clearly hiding something, something which you have concealed in your mind with great care. How is it that we should trust you? We could ask you the same question, Max said evenly. But never mind that. Gaspar, is it? Nice name. That Gaspar here was running around snatching babies. You are Newberians, right? Suffice to say we've run into your kind before. We faced you down. And before you say anything, it's true that I am genetically Newberian. However, you'll find that my loyalties lie with the humans. I'm funny like that. Kind of like... And here, Max hesitated, but some instinct told him to cross this line. Kind of like Mr. E. Anki. He's a friend of mine. We think a lot alike. There was another gasp from four of them. Madame, however, was expressionless. She sipped her tea, but Gustav began to smile. 
Enki is a friend of yours, the broad Asian man repeated, speaking for the first time. If Enki is indeed your friend, it may be that we are on the same side. In any event, Gaspar hissed, it is not a you who must trust us. It is a we who must trust you. After all, you are at our mercy. Gaspar licked his lips. Max nodded grimly. Gaspar was right. There was no point in denying it. Ian fidgeted uncomfortably at his side. Madame came to some sort of decision. You should know that Gaspar was not the one who stole the baby, Madame said. He was sent by us as a spy. He was dressed as the Nuberians do, to blend in. You saw one cloaked Nuberian, who was not Gaspar, steal the child, and then you saw Gaspar emerge from the sky chamber. You merely assumed this was the same man. But in truth, Gaspar has been hiding in the chamber the entire time. He was making his escape when, to his chagrin, he encountered you two, and he believed you to be agents of the Nuberians, just as you believed him to be. And that was why he fought you. Max and Ian nodded warily. This was plausible. The gypsy woman smiled ever so slightly. I should also tell you that not a one of us is Nuberian. We are all quite human. That got Max's attention. Human? Wait, Max said, confused. Okay, then tell me something. If you're human, then why are Nuberians in 1912 New York at all? Did they invade or something? Gustav looked blankly at him as did Madame. Invade, he said. I'm quite sure I don't know what you mean. They've always been here. Now it was Max and Ian's turn to look blank. Always been here? What did that mean? Well, they've only recently set a presence in New York, in any event, Madame continued, in the last uh, twenty years or so. But, Max sputtered, what I mean is, when did they first get here? Oh, I see, Gustav remarked, suddenly understanding the import of his question. Ah, your, your assumption is mistaken. It is true that most Nuberians returned home 7,000 years ago, after Enlil declared that too many were going native. But some did not go back. Some remained. Some number of them have always been among us throughout human history. Max heard a thunderclap in his head. Some number of them? So where had they all been during the pocket? Had Jadith even known of them? Of course she had. Enlil would have known about them. He would have certainly told Jadith, and she would have factored them into her use of the Chrononomicon. She would have had them time-frozen inside the pocket, just like everyone else. Max's brain raced and scrambled. Was it even possible to somehow aim the Chrononomicon like that, so that it hit these left-behind Nuberians, yet somehow missed Max and the Serp kids, whom she did not know about? You did not know this, Gustav said. Max shook his head. They have largely remained hidden, living in small nests, a network of them throughout the world. But Ian had something else on his mind. But uh, why couldn't anyone see the sky chamber? I mean, normal people on the streets. It was like the, the ship was invisible to them. This question caught the five off guard, as if the answer should have been obvious. They glanced at each other nervously, and then Gustav said, There is a long answer, but in short... Sky chambers are not part of the reality of people in our time. They simply don't know how to perceive them. You see, perception happens in the mind, not the eyes. If the mind is baffled, 
then nothing is perceived. It's edited out. The first Spanish ships to cross the Atlantic were initially invisible to the Aztecs, simply because they had never seen vessels of this kind before. They were entirely alien to the Aztec psyche. All the Aztecs could perceive were ripples on the water. They had no internal model to map the ships to. In this way, so too are sky chambers invisible to people of 1912 New York. There is nothing in their experience that would allow them to see such things. Will you now tell us your names? Madame said suddenly. It seemed a reasonable request now, Max found himself thinking. The five of them had shown goodwill with their explanation. It was now their turn. So Max nodded. My name is Max, Max Quick, and this is Ian Keating. And you were right, we are from the future. The that which is yet to come, I mean, your tomorrows. Hello, Ian said stupidly, waving. And let us, likewise, begin with the polite thing to do in society. Introductions. I am Madame Europa Romani, and as you may have guessed, I am Gypsy. Uh, to my left is Dr. Carlos Gustav, an accomplished alienist. Dr. Gustav nodded, studying the young men through his round wireframe glasses. An alienist? Ian questioned. You study people like Max, then? Not precisely. No, it, it means uh, I'm a student of the mind, Gustav replied, smiling. A psychologist, a, a psychoanalyst. Have you heard of these things? Ian nodded. Oh, those last couple, yes. Romani continued. Beside Dr. Gustav is Sambhava, a monk from the land of Tibet. Sambhava gave a broad, welcome smile that pinched up his eyes. Happiness seemed to flood out of him and his gold and red robes rustled as he bowed slightly. And you've already met Gaspar Faliaro, Madame Romani continued wryly. Gaspar gave a low theatrical bow, never taking his burning eyes off Max and Ian. What you perhaps do not know is that Gaspar was also once one of the world's foremost magicians, Gaspar the Great. And finally, allow me to present Michel Laveau, Michelle rose and performed a perfect curtsy. A mademoiselle is perhaps the most naturally gifted of all of us. Her wild talent frightened her family in the Avignon and caused them to abandon her. When she cried as a baby, plates would whiz around the room and shatter. But their loss has been our gain. Michelle smiled brightly as Madame Romani said this and Max thought he had never seen such a beam of clean joy as the one now radiating from her. And uh, together you are what, the super friends? Ian said. Together we are the house of the hidden hand. See, I knew it, Ian confided to Max. I knew they'd have some cool name. Romani continued. We are a circle. There are only two kinds of relationships among people. Circles and pyramids. Circles are natural, healthy. The way of the one. No one person is above anyone else. Everyone gives to the circle and receives in far greater abundance than anyone would on their own. Oh, it's a, a peer-to-peer network, Ian whispered knowingly to Max. The philosophy of the circle is why there is no leader among us. Or rather, there is no rule which says one must do what the leader says. The choice is always yours. You can accept the decision of the leaders or not, and no one will gainsay you. And likewise, 
One of us may perform a leadership role from time to time, and some are better at this than others or have more experience. But no one is required to do what the leader says. Only if you agree and bind yourself to a promise will anyone ever hold sway over you. Pyramids, on the other hand, are hierarchies, one person standing on top of many. You will always find them in false religions and tyrannical governments. And of course, they are rampant in Nuberian society. They are inherently evil. Max nodded knowingly. It had been this crucial understanding of the pyramidal, parasitic nature of evil that had shielded him from the trap of the pendant. By refusing to wield the Nuberian periapt when he possessed it, and allowing Jada to take hold of it, Enki's ancient trap had been sprung, thus thwarting the Nuberians in his own time during the pocket. The Order of the Hidden Hand, Max repeated. And what does the Order do? We protect, Sambava said. From the hidden shadows of the world we protect, and we fight those who would construct pyramids of evil. You see, you must know, said Madame Romani, that this time in which we are now living, 1912, is a critical turning point in the history of the world. We see the signs of it all around us. Nothing like this age has ever happened before. Everything is exhilarating, changing, fantastic inventions abound. We stand upon the cusp of a time unlike any that has come before it in the history of the world. This is the fulcrum of history, the anvil of time. This is the crux, the keystone period. But the Nuberians are meddling in this time of times. They see it also, this extraordinary thing that is happening. And they clearly have their own designs as well. Yes, we know, Max replied. We're here because of something they did. Well, given what you've just said, I assume it's them. They're trying to create a machine of some kind. Before we left our time, we uncovered evidence that they are building it. Now, in 1912. New York City. That's why we're here. The five were silent for a moment. And then Simbaba said simply, You know of the machine as well. But for you, this is something that has happened already. Something you must know that you cannot alter. But tell us, did they succeed? We don't know any more than you, Ian replied. We just found out where and when. We thought perhaps they didn't succeed because we came back and stopped them. Thaliaro snorted. Likely as not it was because someone else has stopped them instead of you two pathetic... Gaspar! Romani shouted. Enough! Max and Thaliaro regarded one another with steely eyes, with the red-hot shoes glowing between them. Also, Max said evenly, Nuberians in our time are doing their level best to kill us. Why is that? Gustav asked. We're not entirely sure. It seems as though they didn't know we existed until very recently. But why would that be? Sambava asked. Did you do something recently that alerted them to your presence? Max and Ian exchanged worried glances. They'd come to it at last. There is a tale, Michelle said suddenly. A long tale in their minds. They are not sure they shall tell us. They don't know whether we are foes or allies. Romani sighed. I realize the trust between us is strained. 
She rose and walked behind her chair, tapping her finger against her front teeth, thinking. Gaspar, remove the shoes from our sight, she said impulsively, waving a hand. Valiero looked at her as if he had been slapped. But we do not know. This time Romani did not speak. She simply looked at him. Valiero hesitated for a moment and then reluctantly complied. Nevertheless, he carefully placed the shoes back in the deepest embers of the fires, as if keeping them at the ready. Max nodded to Romani, visibly relieved by the removal of the shoes. Thank you, he said quietly. You've decided to trust us this far. We will return the favor. And frankly, we need all the friends we can get right now. As do we, Gustav replied with a weariness in his gaze. Over the course of the next several hours, Max and Ian took turns relating the events of the pocket and the pendant. Several times, their listeners interrupted, mostly to clarify things that were not familiar to them in 1912. Max's description of trying a cell phone and the internet with Casey, for example, had to be explained. But surprisingly, most of it made sense to them right away. They knew what the singular eye was, for example. Max had been about to explain it when Sabava cut him off with a curt, We know of that black stone. Please continue and much of what Anki had told them about Nuberian history on Earth and of the Dreamtime was old news to them. Romani waved them to speed past this part. But they did seem amazed that Max and Ian had actually spoken directly with Mr. E, having found a passage to the Isle of the Dreamtime through a back door in a book. Baliero had snorted as if this bit were obviously pure poppycock, and discredited the rest of the tale. Evidently, none of them had ever spoken with Anki, but more than that, he was apparently a somewhat legendary figure to them. They found it as amazing as if Max and Ian had claimed to have spoken directly with Abraham Lincoln. When Max described the Pyramid of the Arches, his listeners asked him several times to clarify where exactly it was located. It was Ian who tried to fill in the geography, since it was he who had had it burned into his brain. But you couldn't get to it directly without a sky chamber, Ian explained. It's too deep underwater. The water pressure would crush any craft humans have built, even in our own time with modern technology. Then they relayed the sequence of events that had led them to attempt the journey back to 1912. But I thought you could not get to the Pyramid of the Arches without a sky chamber, Valiero sneered, implying that he had at last spotted an inconsistency which exposed the two of them as frauds. Ian patiently explained that one could get to it, if one knew where the other sides of the various time portals were located. You could just go through one of them, just as he and Max had done through the one behind the dumpster at the Starland Food Universe parking lot. And there's also one across the street from the Flatiron Building, Ian explained, and that's how we got here. When they had finished their tale, the five were silent for a long while. They seemed to be waiting for Romani to say something. She sat and tapped her teeth, her eyes focused on somewhere not in the room. When at last her attention popped back to the present, she said softly, Thank you for trusting us with this story. I know now that you take a great risk in telling us. We may well have been the very Nuberians you are seeking to thwart, and you had good reason to think that we might have been. After all, who else would know about books and sky chambers? You would have no way of knowing we existed. I hear the truth in your words. Michel, do you agree? Mademoiselle Laveau nodded without hesitation, her curls bouncing as she did so. Oh yes, alors it is quite plain to me. Valiero sunk defeated into his chair. He sulked and fiddled with his hand bandage and did not seem at all convinced. 
yet he had retreated for the time being. Romani also seemed curiously bothered by something in the tale, but she did not give voice to it. Instead, she said, Well, we have come a long way towards trusting one another this night, I think. But Faliero simply snorted in disgust. Romani turned to him, mildly surprised. You are not satisfied even still, Gaspar. No, I am not, he sneered. I still do not trust this Nuberian boy and his black-headed servant, and I think all of you are fools to be taken in by the web of lies. We may be the black-headed ones, but they are the black-hearted ones, and they have spoken with a black tongue since antiquity. I do not see what is so different now. But I have a thought of a test, something simple, something to prove or disprove that what they are saying is the truth. They waited for the punchline. Valiero had played the moment like a virtuoso. Max's heart sank. Would Gaspar undo the hours of goodwill they had just worked so hard to earn? Valiero spoke now directly to Max. We have amassed a library of books. Most made by Yankee, purportedly. As you have seen, many books are even here in New York, in private libraries. Although to their talentless owners they are inert. Not books, but merely books. Simply ancient curiosities. Yet in your magnificent tale, you say that books made by Enki all have a back door, a way to get to this Isle of the Dream Time, where he left the golem version of himself. A back door to this mythical place of his that we, despite all of our combined talents and expertise, have yet to discover. Valiero spoke now triumphantly and dramatically to his colleagues. I propose that we give these two a book and see if they can, in fact, take us to the Isle of the Dreamtime, to Anki, right now. He grinned, seemingly confident that his demand could not be met. And furthermore, if they cannot, then, at last, we give them the shoes, and then we know the truth. Max, however, breathed a sigh of relief and stood up. That's it. That's easy. Get us a book. We'll leave right away. Max couldn't resist a feeling of glee at the shocked look on Faliero's face, but he recovered quickly and left the room in a huff. Ian and Max's eyes met. They were thinking the same thing. Enki would know what to do. He would be able to advise them. Why, he might even have the whole situation under control already, having devised a trap like the pendant. He may simply be waiting for the lot of them to arrive to set the last pieces into motion. In their own time, directly following the events of the pocket, Mr. E had instructed Abdiel to collect up all the books and to hide them somewhere where no one could find them. Consequently, Max and Ian had no way to get back to Mr. E again, or the Isle of the Dreamtime. Though on considerably more than one occasion, they had longed to return to his isle. And the obvious hadn't yet occurred to either of them. That here in this time, in 1912, books were still abundant all over the world. Getting to Mr. E would be a cinch, and they actually had Faliero to thank for the idea. Presently, Faliero returned, proudly, with a book in hand. Roughly, he handed it to Max. No tricks, boy. You try to go anywhere other than the Isle, and I will follow you and kill you both. Max nodded. No tricks. 
Probably Michelle and Romani would hear the honesty in his voice. No one else did, he thought. He would have to rely on them to restrain Faliero if things got out of hand. Max looked at Ian. Okay, here we go, everyone. Gather around. They arrived at the Isle of the Dreamtime in the same manner as before. That is to say, in a collective tangled pile. Ian had yawned while robotically solving Enki's humor-testing puzzle, the one with the N key, and Faliero had watched suspiciously over his shoulder. Max and Ian neglected to tell the group what would happen ahead of time, not being able to resist panicking Faliero, and they hoped the rest would forgive them for this one small prank. As they all got up from the ground, Faliero grabbed Max by the collar with his good hand. Next time, kindly inform us before the something like that occurs. Max nodded nonchalantly and turned away, snickering. Ian thought he even caught Romani smiling to herself at their joke. Just as in their previous visit, the fabric of existence was noticeably richer. Primary shades of color not available in the mundane world they had just left were commonplace here. Max had been hard-pressed to remember what they had looked like. His memory could not hold them, yet he was seeing them again for the first time in five years. He found himself thinking things like, Ah, yes, that color, now I remember. Funny that didn't stay in my mind. Here it was mid-afternoon, and the tumbling sky above was thick with piles of pastel whirling clouds. Max remembered Casey's words with a pang of regret. Everything here seems like a special effect. And she had been right. The potency of this heightened reality was not lost on their companions. Michelle stared into the sky above in wonder. Romani gazed at the roaring sea with a small smile of serenity. Gustav stared at the floor as if he were seeing stone for the very first time in his life. And Sambava ran his fingers along the rough wall, listening to the sound of his fingertips scrape the battlements like he was hearing a symphony. Faliero looked around him suspiciously. This is a trick, a maze of the senses. Gaspar, Romani said quietly, not looking at him. That is quite enough. If this is a maze, then I will see more of it and perhaps even feel glad for it. But as Max looked around, he suddenly got a sinking feeling. Something was wrong. The Persian rugs were missing. The table and chairs were thrown about, broken. The fireplace looked as if it hadn't been used in ages, and there was no trace at all of a television set or a magic refrigerator filled with infinite flavors of ice cream. Max could feel the hope drain out of him. Worse than that, the far wall of the tower roof deck was gone, completely ripped away, and the nearby floor was partially missing, terminating in jagged stone chunks. As Max walked over to where it should have been, he felt heartsick. He looked down. The obsidian on the whole side of the tower had been blasted apart. A good fourth of the total material of the tower had sloughed off. Massive piles of rubble littered the rock face and poked up from the sea below. Some terrible disaster had occurred here. The tower on the Isle of the Dreamtime was now little more than a crumbling ruin. Belliero seemed to pick up on Max's panic. He opened his arms wide and said mockingly, So, now here we are. Where is Anki? Where is the mythical Mr. E? Ian had joined Max in looking over the edge. Oh no, he moaned. Ignoring Faliero, Max ran frantically around the perimeter of the tower. Downstairs, he said urgently to Ian. They descended the spiral staircase. That, at least, was still intact. Oh, is he hiding it down the below, perhaps? 
Valero called after them. Max and Ian entered the tower's great kitchen. Again, they were met with devastation. The far wall and several stone ovens were completely ripped away. A giant hole in the rock wall opened to a gulf of sky. The stone terrace where they had eaten a spectacular breakfast with Mr. E, cooked and served by one of his mysterious companions, the Black Magician, was gone. The terrace simply didn't exist anymore. As they frantically explored the rest of the tower, they found that the room in which they had slept was whole, but the beds and other furnishings were gone, as if robbers had sacked the place. Sand and dust covered the floor as if it had been deserted for a millennium. Hollow despair crowded the minds of both Max and Ian. They looked at each other with tears in their eyes, not for themselves, but for Mr. E, for whatever had happened here. This had been the one happy place in the whole adventure of the pocket, the one time they had felt truly safe had been here. Mr. E had protected them, told them ancient secrets, and fortified them for their final task with Jadith. Max himself had supposedly come to this place on countless occasions previously, inevitably returning each time he had seen through his self-imposed charade. It was a sanctuary, and it had been destroyed. Well, I don't understand how this can be, Ian whispered. But we're in the past, in 1912. This should be before our initial visit during the time of the pocket. He should be here. Ian kicked the dust in frustration. Max shook his head. No. Then Mr. E would have told us about it. He would have mentioned that you had been here before as well. He wasn't keeping secrets from us, Max replied softly. Uh, maybe he had a reason why he didn't tell us. Something he planned, or something it would upset if we knew about it ahead of time. Or, or maybe or maybe he just hasn't arrived yet, Ian said, thinking he had hit on it. Yeah, for all we know, he finds his place sometime between now and the time of the pocket, and he fixes it up. We're here before he gets here. But Max shook his head again. No, he said he'd been here for 6,000 years. And remember what he said about this place? We're in an enfoldment of the dream time. There is no time here, or at least a different sort of time. It flows differently, a super time or something. But anyway, I think whatever happened here, it happened after the pocket. It might be five years later here, like it is for us, or thousands of years. When was the last time Domitian actually spoke with Mr. E? Max shrugged. Years, I think. Not since just after the pocket. Ian nodded. I would love for you to be wrong, but you're probably right. Whenever you come here to the Isle of the Dreamtime, no matter what year you come from, it's always now here. Ian scrunched up an eye trying to grasp it. Yeah. Yeah, Max agreed. Ian shook his head. Oh, Mr. E. What happened here? Madame Romani entered the bedroom quietly. This is not what you expected, is it? Max nodded. He's gone, and the tower is wrecked. Something bad happened. A recollection of crows attacking Anki spiked in his mind like jab cuts in a film. Ian whispered, The Archons. Max squeezed his eyes shut at the thought. Was that why Anki had been a rattled homeless man, haunting the Food Universe parking lot like a ragged specter? Romani jumped back at the word Archons and whispered something under her breath like a charm of protection. You know of those demons, do you? She said. Max nodded. I told you that in the story of the pocket. They attacked the tower. They attacked Anki just as we were leaving. 
It didn't look so good for him, but when we saw him later on, he'd said that he'd defeated them. He didn't seem too worried about it. They must have come back and finished the job. Gustav, Faliero, Zambaba, and Michelle had quietly entered the room behind Romani. The three of them wore sympathetic expressions on their faces. Faliero said nothing but looked on smugly. Madame nodded. So, the great Anki is not here, she said sadly. I must confess disappointment. It was a tantalizing thought. We thought that, uh, that we were actually about to meet the ancient author of our condition. And yet, Sambaba said, smiling broadly, I am happy to have seen his dwelling, his wondrous place even in its demise. It is wonderful, Michelle agreed, her eyes sparkling. Max met her gaze for a moment before she looked away. But there is a Noah, Mr. E, Valiero protested. This time, Sambaba answered him. That is through no fault of Max's or Ian's. Can it be that you fail to see the truth of what they have told us in the very bones of this place? The world around you is clearly, clearly a richer vibration of the dream time, and yet you persist in seeing only treachery. Yes, Gaspar, peace, Gustav rebuked him as well. I have read of such things. Our arts and books have spoken to us of them, but I have not seen the likes of this in all my years. Neither have you. Lord, it is plain to me that someone of great power was once here for a long time, Michelle trilled, gazing at the ravaged stone as though it were art. Madame reached out to Max, took his hand. Come, Max, you have shown us a wonder, though you meant to show us even more. It is enough. We will grant you sanctuary. You have earned our trust and you will be safe among us. He eyed Ferriero as she said this. Gaspar hesitated for a moment and then gave a low bow. That was his word, apparently. It was clear that he was not happy, but that he would acquiesce to the judgment of the group. Let us return to the house, Madame said with a mournful sigh, reluctant to leave. When they arrived back at the house, Gustav led them up to a room on the fourth floor facing the back alley. The room was large, almost like a giant hotel room. Two large feather beds were at opposite ends. There were two bathrooms, one on either side, and two tall armoires. Soft gas lamps lit the room on wooden nightstands and cherrywood desks. The smell of camphor and tallow lilted on the air. This room is yours, as long as you are with us, Gustav said. Max nodded. Thanks. He sat on one of the beds. This one's mine, he said to Ian. Ian scowled. He had been eyeing that bed as it was further away from the clanky radiator. Well, it's been a long day, Gustav said. I suppose you two will want to get some sleep. They both nodded. They were exhausted. Very well, then. We will see you in the morning. With that, Gustav left the room and closed the door. Several minutes later, Max rose and checked the doorknob. They had not been locked. They were not prisoners, after all. Max shrugged at Ian. Well, that's a good sign, he said. Yeah, Ian said. Either that or it's so Faliero can come in here and throttle us in our sleep. Just after they had both settled into their beds, Ian said, I know what you're thinking. What? Max replied. That Michelle, you like her. Oh, come on, Max replied. Be serious. Like we have time for that. No, you do. I know you. Don't lie to me. Max was silent and then said, Well, I'm... Ah! Ian verbally overrode him. See? I told you. 
That is not what I was going to say. Still, you do. Max twitched. Why, do you? No, Ian laughed. That's not what I meant. Well, think about it. I mean, it's 1912 and she's, what, 16? She's old enough to be a grandmom. Max cocked an eyebrow. Actually, it's the other way around. I'm old enough to be her great-great-great-great-grandfather. Ian laughed out loud. That's true, Ian agreed. Interesting. I wonder which one of you would be robbing the cradle. Max sighed. I don't know. She does the whole aloof thing. Maybe back now in 1912, that's what girls do, even if they like you. So I take it the thing with Casey is definitely over. I don't know. It might not be over, over. Indefinite isn't a word I would use. But we're not together. And it doesn't look like we're getting back together anytime soon. But seriously, Max, Ian replied. Let's say for kicks that you and the French Wonder Girl got together. What then? You want to stay here? Well, why not? Max mused, half serious. We know that history can't be altered. I wouldn't have to worry about altering the timeline or something. There's no real reason why I couldn't if I decided to. Then Max shook his head and a shadow came over his face. But that's not what really worries me. Ian sat up. What do you mean? The hidden hand. They don't make it. Something happens to them. How can you know that? Ian asked, baffled. The pocket. Where were they? If they had lived through until that time, we would have seen them. And they should have easily been able to manage to live another hundred years. Perhaps even more than that. Romani said she's over three hundred. They know the same life extension trick Siren does. And they would have been free to move around in the pocket just like we were in the Serps. The Chrononomicon would have worked on them also. Hell, if it worked on someone as stupid as Ace, don't tell me Romani and the rest of our new and very talented friends wouldn't have been able to latch on as well. And if they were there, they would have certainly been trying to do something about the pocket to stop Jadith. They would have figured out what was up pretty quickly. We would have heard about them, run into them, something. But we didn't. There's no trace of them. They're nowhere to be found. And that's because, between now and the time of the pocket, they're wiped out. Ian sat in silent shock for a full two minutes. All right. It's the only explanation. And Romani knows it, Max concluded. That's why she got all silent when we finished. What about the others? Max shook his head. I don't think they've guessed it yet, and Romani isn't going to tell them. You've been listening to Max Quick, Book Two, The Two Travelers, by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. Produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Podiobooks.com. For more information on this patio book, please visit www.maxquickseries.com. The print version of both The Pocket and the Pendant, Max Quick Book 1, and The Two Travelers, Max Quick Book 2, are available at lulu.com in paperback format, PDF format, and hardcover. <laughs>